Well, we, uh, as I mentioned by email, we made the decision to continue with the Psalms of Ascent, which you'll be really excited about. As you probably noticed, most of them are about less than 10 verses, which means uh, instead of me asking you to endure with children, 55 minutes of me working through Romans chapter 6, uh, I thought we'd do, continue with the, the Psalms of Ascent for a while, uh, recognizing families are in together. So, And I've got, the kids will be excited. I've got some good stories in here you're going to like as well, too. So you guys may get to the end of this series and be like, that's better than the 55-minute stuff. Let's just keep doing the 25-minute thing. Uh, but uh, I, the Psalms of Ascent have been really meaningful for me. I've been really enjoying going through them, so I'm excited to spend some more time in them. Of course, today we're on the next one, Psalm 124, and I want to go ahead and just jump right into the passage. So Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124. Um, You might notice there's an interesting little introduction to Psalm 124. You get this sort of break in the sentence, and then the line, let all of Israel say, and then it starts over again. Probably what Psalm 124 is, is a kind of corporate call to prayer or worship. It probably would have been some sort of a choir leader or a worship leader who would have stood before a congregation of Israel in worship. He would have begun this line, line one, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then he would have turned to the group of people and said, let Israel now say, um, and I've been pointing out to you as we've worked through the Psalms, most of these Psalms would have been memorized by most of Israel. So when all of Israel, imagine yourselves, I'm sure you all were exactly this way. When I read, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, you would have all said, oh yes, Psalm 124, right? You immediately got that from the first sentence. Well, probably they did. So all it would have taken to have sort of kicked off this worship song was for somebody to say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let all of Israel now say, and collectively they would have all gone into it together, starting from the beginning, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side. Now, one of the first things that strikes you about that is the collectiveness of Psalm 124. It seems to be intended for this use, a group of people praying, singing, working through this psalm together. Over and over again in the psalm, you'll notice that the pronoun is us. We, God has delivered us. Let all of Israel now say, Um, There are plenty of psalms, many of which we've looked at over the last couple of months, that are psalms written from an individual, a single person in a difficult situation trying to express that emotion, that situation. But here, this is a psalm that is meant to be prayed as a community, a group of people. It assumes that the deliverance that will come at the end of the psalm is our deliverance. We, as a part of this community, this group of people, find us collectively delivered from this trap. One of the things that's really struck me about the Psalms is that the Psalms refuse to be either just personal prayer or just corporate prayer. The Psalms really force us into praying in both contexts, as a person before God and as a person as a part of a community before God. Um, There are plenty of Psalms which you can pray singularly, I, but there are just as many Psalms that force you to pray we, 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, which I quote to you all the time, so you'll expect it. Uh, I can just say life together at this point. You'll know where it's coming from. He says this about this individuality and corporateness of the Christian experience. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. In other words, what he's capturing is what the Psalms do so well. The Christian experience is not one that you live individually, nor is it one that you live only corporately. You aren't a Christian simply because you pray in isolation, and you're not a Christian simply because you belong and have membership in a church. The Christian experience, this pilgrimage that the Psalms of Ascent are trying to capture, must be lived both as an individual before God and as a part of a larger group, a community of people. So much about these Psalms of Ascent and this idea of being on a journey can feel individualistic, uh, especially in our culture today. It's my path. It's my journey. It's the risks I face. It's the destination I'm trying to reach and get to. But these few psalms in the middle of the Psalms of Ascent force us to remember that we're not alone on this road. In fact, we make this pilgrimage only by doing it as a part of a group of people. Remember that psalm just a couple of weeks ago, that final destination itself is all of Israel gathered together in Jerusalem for worship. The psalms anticipate the fulfillment of community and the necessity of community along that path. Now, the psalm opens with a famous phrase. Uh, The ESV I read from has it, God is on our side. Maybe the more famous way of putting it is God is for us. God is for us. The psalmist then outlines this context by which we recognize how God has been for us. And he gives us four images. This people rising up, the enemy sort of image, the raging waters, the teeth of the wild animals, and the snare, the trap that catches the bird. We don't know the exact historical context for Psalm 124, although it tells us that it's a psalm of David, which could mean that David wrote it or that it was written out of the stories of David and the tone of David. Um, It's not hard to look at David's situation and imagine a situation in which this psalm might have been written, in which he faced these sort of perils that it's describing. But it's also probably true that this psalm was meant to be used for more broader purposes at all times of human experience, we can pretty much say we know what it is to feel at risk, to face traps, to face snares on this journey. The first threat that's described in this psalm is that people rose up against us. Now, there's a lot of ways in Hebrew that you could say people or nation or enemies that rose up against us, but the Hebrew word here for people is Adam. Um, One of the things you're going to have to deal with is I'm auditing some Hebrew over the summer at the AGTS. So look, I can't help it, right? It helps me with my studying if I use it in the sermon and you seem like I'm learning something in the way. So Adam. But you don't have to have a Hebrew course to recognize that word sounds a little bit familiar. Adam is the same word. Adam. I'm really giving you like chapter one Hebrew here. So don't worry. It's not too complicated. Um, Adam's name in the Genesis account literally means in Hebrew something like man. So you could refer to Adam as an individual, Adam, or you could also use Adam to mean something like humanity, mankind, but it can also be used to describe ground, the the earth, the soil. In other words, think of the connection, Adam was brought up from the ground, right, created from the ground. 
So here, remember the Psalms are a kind of poetry. The image tends to be something like these people that rose up. It uses this word Adam, when humanity rose up, catch the image, like from the ground, against us. What's being described here is probably not just a military threat. We've seen those Psalms, an invading army, a force that's come in. Here, it tends to be something more universal, something much bigger. The human opposition to those who trust and are trying to journey towards God. In other words, the psalm is saying, we all know what it is to be fixed on this path leading to God, this journey of faith, and around us to recognize that there is a whole way of being human, a whole world of humanity that rises up against that path and does everything it can to put an end to it. Often that humanness is something we experience within ourselves Often it's the abstraction of culture around us that ridicules or tempts us away from the path of faith. But the psalmist is capturing the way that for the person who goes about this pilgrimage, the human experience is that humanity, the humanness of life, can rise up against us and distract us and pull us off that course. Psalm 146 that comes later does the same comparison with this human, Adamness. It says, Put not your trust in princes... In a son of man, in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. See this ground connection. And on that very day, his plans perish. In other words, Psalm 146 is saying, you will be tempted to put your hope and your confidence and your trust in the humanness around you. The princes, the people who come to power, who offer you salvation and hope. But don't put your trust, your faith, your confidence in the human experience, the humanness around you, the human solutions. For when those very people of power breathe their last, they return to the ground, the dust, and their plans, their salvation along with them. Uh, The thing that struck me about this psalm was how often Israel was at risk of doing this, of turning their attention away from the path God had them on and instead finding infatuation and interest Uh, meaning and purpose in the ways of humanity around them. And in the process, what does Psalm 124 uh, warn? That this humanness will swallow you whole. That the risk is when you take your attention off of this path leading to God and you turn instead to the ways of humanity, that your life is swallowed by it. How often was Israel at that very risk? Not just being militarily defeated, that somebody would come in and take their cities from them and burn them down and haul them into captivity. That happened. But they constantly faced this overwhelming pressure from the world, the cultures around them, to be like everyone else, to do what everyone else is doing, to be absorbed into the humanness of this existence. Think of how many times Israel, throughout the biblical story and even into our modern day, faced this risk of simply being absorbed, swallowed whole disappearing from existence. Um, You might notice we no longer talk about the Philistines or the Moabites or the Midianites, some of these other great and more powerful kingdoms than Israel at the time. They no longer exist. Why? Because they did exactly this. They were swallowed whole, absorbed by the human experience on into something else. They were conquered and assimilated, their identity, their worship, their ideas absorbed in and lost to history. But Israel, throughout its story, never was swallowed. It came close many times. We have this idea of a remnant that remained because oftentimes this was the temptation and the pressure. During the period of the judges, had it not been for a few individuals God called as Savior, 
the whole story of Israel might have been lost. It was in the days of King Josiah, you might remember, that they found the law, the scrolls, and began to reenact the proper worship of God. Had that king, those scrolls not be found, could it be possible that all of Israelite worship would have been lost? Or the story of King Cyrus under the Persian exile that gave permission for them to return and rebuild Jerusalem. Had it been a different king, had it been a different disposition towards Israel, could they have never been allowed to have returned and been lost into the culture of Persia? Over and over, you look back at Israel's history and you say, how did they escape that? When a power and a force as big as the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans came in to conquer and assimilate, how is it that this little obscure nation of Israel persisted in their worship of God when all of the powers and strength of humanity sought to swallow them whole? Yet here they are, this remnant, this people, escaping from the risk. You could say the same thing about the church. How many times in church history have the powers, the humanness at B, sought to destroy it, to torture faith out of them, to chase them out of the cities, to outlaw their worship, to mock them and banish them, and yet here we are in places all over the world with these little groups of people like us in the midst of crisis coming together and continuing to worship and believe together. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when people, when humanity rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Psalm 124. But the Lord was for us. The second image is the image of this torrent of floodwaters. Um, If you go to Israel or have been to Israel, one of the things that you will often see in Israel is the way that they have these these, uh, unique challenges with flash flooding, which might seem kind of strange to you because during parts of the year, parts of Israel receive very little rain. But oftentimes what will happen is high up in one of the mountains, one of the ranges, you'll get these sudden bursts of rain. And all of that rainwater will get channeled down through various ravines, often coming together into just a few of those ravines that lead down out of those hills. And it can happen that in a matter of moments, all of that rain that might be miles away suddenly builds into one ravine and becomes this flash flood torrent through that ravine. In fact, even today, it's not uncommon for people to get caught in one of these ravines hiking or even motorists driving through one of the roads to find themselves stranded or in a flash flood rescue kind of situation, even though you think you're out in the middle of the desert. Um, In fact, much of ancient civilization was trying to figure out when the water does come, how do we divert it so that we can use it for the next three months until it does again, because it can be such a surprise when it happens. That's what the psalmist is capturing here. That you could be about your business, strolling down through this wilderness, and all of a sudden find yourself rushed away by this torrent of water. Here, the images of being caught completely off guard by this force, this energy of nature. Um, If I could also do a little bit of a sidebar here, one of the things I want to show you about these psalms is the way this Hebrew poetry works. Uh, uh, Verse 4 and 5 is a really good example of how the Hebrews often wrote poetry. And I want to show you this so that later on when you're reading a psalm, you'll say, oh, I see what we were talking about. Um, When we think about poetry, we think about roses are red, violets are blue, 
sugar is sweet, and so are you. There's like a hundred variations of that, right? Fill in your own. Uh, We call that poetry, I don't know if you really call that poetry, but we think of poetry like that because it rhymes. That's the sort of, when I say poem, you think, oh yes, the words rhyme at the end of each line. Um, Not all of our poetry does that, but in Hebrew, uh, basically none of the poetry does that. And part of that's because Hebrew rhymes by the way that it works. You attach endings to all of these words, and so oftentimes, just in a regular sentence, half the words will rhyme with each other. So the Hebrew poets weren't trying to say, how do I write a psalm about God being for us that rhymes every word at the end? Um, Instead, the way that they approached poetry was, one of the foundational ideas was what's called parallelism. In other words, they would write a verse, and then they would try to write the exact same idea in the second verse, but change the language in such a way that it was more interesting, or that it built in expectation. It got bigger or worse, or they emphasized the point through the second line. And oftentimes what they loved to do was to find a different way of saying the exact same thing which can make reading the Psalms a little confusing because it sounds like they're just redundant, right? Like, didn't you just say that? And now it sounds like you're saying the exact same thing. But what they're trying to do is use this sort of literary technique to find interesting ways to keep making the same point. So you catch it here whenever you're reading verse four and five. One of my favorite translations, Robert Alter's translation, I think catches it even better. He says this, then the waters would have swept us up. The torrent came up past our necks. Verse 1. Then how do you say that in another but kind of different and interesting way? So he flips it. Then it would have come up past our necks, the raging waters. In other words, he's intensifying this image by playing with the parallels. Like I said, little sidebar. If that's not interesting to you, forget that I ever said it. Go on reading the Psalms the way you wanted to. But uh, uh, oftentimes, if you'll get that little parallel thing, it'll make a lot of sense out of what's happening in these Psalms. After this flood waters. The second image we get is teeth of a predator. I love the way that this first image, a torrent of water, the power of nature, now it becomes this particular detailed, a single animal, this predator, its teeth, which are meant to tear into us. And then finally, the image, probably the most famous image of Psalm 124 is the bird escaping from the fowler's snare. Um, This image really had me thinking a lot this week, and this is where I told the kids I would have a story for them. You guys will appreciate this one, Um, and I'll leave out more of the gory details at the end, so don't worry. Uh, We have two barn cats that live in our uh, barn where we have our horse, and lately they've been getting run out by a raccoon that has taken up residence in the hayloft, which has created a problem because the cats come to the house in one end, the raccoon eats all the cat food, like it's becoming more and more of a problem. We have to clean up after the cat, after the raccoons in the hayloft, which is not a job that I want to do. So I decided I was going to trap the raccoons to get rid of them from the hayloft. Um, we have a box trap, so uh, it shuts the door whenever they go in. And I read somewhere, believe it or not, maybe you guys know this, but raccoons love marshmallows. I don't know who figured that out or how that happened, uh, but it proved very true. The first night I put marshmallows out, I got plenty of raccoon interest. But what was interesting is I set the, uh, this trap out in the middle of the barn in the floor, and I put my, one of my security cameras in the barn that's motion detected so I can watch this all play out. Anytime a raccoon goes near the trap, I get a notification on my phone, and I can pull up a live video and watch how this raccoon is going to figure me out better than I can figure him out. So the first night when I set this trap out, marshmallows inside of it, notification comes on. I watch as the raccoon smells around the trap, Starts to go in the door. There's a lever inside that if he gets in, he presses and the door shuts behind him. And he gets about halfway in the trap and backs out, goes around, reaches in, sets the trap from the side, 
tips the trap over so that all the marshmallows spell through the metal grate onto the floor, and then goes and eats them off the concrete floor. As I'm watching this all on my phone, saying that did not work the way that it was supposed to work. So it took me multiple nights, probably three or four nights, to figure out how I could hide this thing between two trash cans so it didn't look like a trap before I finally caught this raccoon. Um, What's really interesting is he was very smart, And he seemed not to be fearful of this trap in any way at all until he realized he was trapped. Once the door shut, it was a very different experience for the raccoon to be trapped inside. The truth is, no one likes being trapped, right? This was a very clever raccoon until it didn't work and he found himself no path out. The door shut behind him. Um, Most people don't like similar experiences, whether it's some sort of claustrophobic, uh, confined space, or maybe you've been stuck in an MRI machine for too long and felt that bit of panic, I'm trapped in here. Uh, Most of us do not enjoy the experience of being trapped in some situation physically, but we also don't enjoy that experience of being trapped in a situation that we can't find a solution or a way to get ourselves out of. It could be a sickness for which you can't find an answer, some sort of financial loss that's now robbed you of control, It can be an unsolvable crisis, which none of us know exactly how to deal with, a painful relationship that doesn't seem to offer a way out. We've all been reminded so many times of what it is to lose control and to find ourselves in a situation in which we are trapped. Like this raccoon, we toy with the trap. I think like the psalm picks up, this bird suddenly caught in the fowler snare, suddenly coming to the realization that we were in danger maybe when we hadn't realized it. When we thought we were in control and doing well and had everything under our control, we suddenly find that door slamming behind us and the fowler snare tightening around our ankles and we realize things have not been what we thought they were. And this is what the psalm seeks to capture. This experience of this bird caught. Realize that it's trapped. But the psalm also gives us this surprise. No more has this bird realized that he's been caught in this trap than he realizes Not that he knew how to break the trap and get out. Not that he had figured out the mechanism by which he could set the trap, turn it over, and get the bait. But as soon as he's caught in the trap, the bird recognizes that the trap is broken. It's not actually a trap at all. He flies right out of it. The trap that he imagined himself in turned out to be nothing at all. Um, Have you ever been thrilled, so thrilled, that something went wrong and you suddenly realized it wasn't wrong at all? That's this idea of the psalm, to have been caught but then realized that you weren't, that you were free. Uh, Honestly, this is the human experience, as embarrassing as it is, that happens so often to me. Some bad thing happens, some bit of risk you encounter, and you start jumping to wild conclusions about what it will mean, the consequences, how you won't be able to solve the problem, the difficulty you're going to be in, your mind races with the consequences, and then suddenly, as so often is the case, it just never really materializes. The thing you had worried so much about doesn't happen. Um, This week, our hot water heater went out. Um, I know a little bit about how hot hot heaters work. I know how to light a pilot. I understand what I thought it was. I even diagnosed this thing with the help of YouTube. It was a hydrocoil. That was my theory when I called the plumber. Uh, It's gas, so I usually don't involve myself with fixing those things. So I called a professional. Uh, The plumber came over. He looked at it. He reached down. He pressed a little white button that I hadn't noticed. And the thing lit right back up and started. Turns out there's a safety switch the YouTube video did not tell me about on this particular form. 
In fact, it was such an easy fix that he refused to even take payment from me. I offered him a little cash to say thank you on the way out, but I think he enjoyed the laugh at my expense more than anything else. I had already gone through all the math. It's a propane water heater, which means it costs a little bit more than a normal one, so we're probably with install and him having to get it, if he even can, because I know there's parts issues with coronavirus, $1,200. I was going through the math. Where will that money come from? The truth is, it ended up being a simple little button (laughs) that he wouldn't even take payment for. The snare is broken. We've escaped. God is for us. So much that we had feared turned out not to be. The kings and their kingdoms marched in on Israel, took them in chains away, and yet somehow they returned. They kept worshiping their God. God kept rebuilding his people, holding together this remnant. It's hard to see it now, and the truth is, oftentimes those fears do materialize. The thing we had feared worst plays out exactly as we had feared it. What we had most wanted not to happen becomes the thing that actually does happen. This happens in Jesus' story as well. One of the things you'll note as you pay attention to the Gospels, as Jesus was about his ministry, the religious leaders were constantly trying to set traps for him. They literally say it to one another. Let's trick him. Let's trap him and catch him in his own words. They said it openly as they posed theoretical questions, challenges, tried to catch him between two theological opinions. For Jesus, the worst that could have come of those traps, those consequences, played out. Eventually, they did exactly what they had set out to do. They sprung a trap. With the help of Judas, who betrayed him, they arrested him just a few days after he had been welcomed in as Messiah to Jerusalem. They arrested him. They tried him in a mock trial. And they trapped him to a cross. Anything that you could have imagined as a worst-case scenario played itself out. And so Jesus' followers, after his death, came to the conclusion nothing had been what they had expected. In fact, the resurrected Jesus encountered two of these disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Their line to him, not recognizing him, was they had hoped that this was the Messiah. Apparently, they had now come to the conclusion it was all wrong. The worst-case scenario. Everything about life, what they had expected and planned, what they had given so much of their attention to, walking away from jobs, walking away from home to follow, it had all failed. The trap had shut. The door had slung closed behind Jesus. He was dead and in a tomb. What more was there to do? But Jesus explained to them that they had missed everything that Scripture was saying that all of the stories of Scripture had been predicting exactly this, that the trap would be set, that he would die, but that by his death, the trap would be broken for good, that death would be no more, that the victory of death would be defeated. So Paul, in Romans chapter 8, one of the great, eventually in our study of Romans, we will get to, one of the great passages of the New Testament, looks at this phrase, God is for us, and the way in which Christ's death, Christ's escape from that trap would earn that experience for all of us. And Paul would say this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Hear, hear, humanity rising up against us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Psalm 124 was answered by Christ. We know what Psalm 124 was longing for, to escape this trap, to escape the waters, to be held together, to not be swallowed whole by the pressures of the world because Christ was swallowed and was trapped was caught in that torrent, and so in it he broke it, resurrected it, escaped from it, and by it we recognize now more than any could before what it fully means to read those words, God is for us. If he would do this for us, what else lie ahead? I know that there are often times in life that that trap seems to have set, and there does not seem to be an escape from it. Some of you find yourself in those situations. I'm not unaware or naive to them, nor the fear or the anxiety, the pain that often is associated with it. But what scripture would tell you is that that trappedness that you feel is only this moment, that moment before this bird recognized that the trap was broken. The pain, the fear, the anxiety is real, but a day is coming where the trap lets loose. Nothing is lost. Every tear is wiped away. All things are reworked for good so that all will sing not of what was lost in that trap, but what was gained in that moment of realization that Christ has freed us and by his grace given us more than we could have ever imagined, more than conquerors, more than free from the trap, but given grace and hope and mercy and a new life for all eternity. Let's close in prayer this morning and we'll worship. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing what it is to feel trapped. Knowing what it is to feel the pressure and the fear and the anxiety of this world. To feel like the whole thing is going to just swallow us whole and we'll be gone. To feel like we finally, unexpectedly, are caught in a torrent, a flood, up to our necks. We know what it is to lose control. To not have a way out, to not know how, to not know what to do. And so we're reminded by this psalm this morning to turn our attention to what you have done. That God, we are poor in spirit. We are hungry and thirsty. That we do mourn. That we don't bring a solution to this problem. But instead, in our own humility and need, we turn our eyes to you. And we recognize that you have broken the trap. That you have made a way for our freedom where there was no way. That by your death and your resurrection, you have defeated that great trap of death itself and promised us a new life and a new hope. And as Paul reminded us by his words, how much more do you do for those that you would do this for, that you would die for? So we recognize as painful and as difficult as this trapped experience can sometimes be, the failure of our own bodies, the failure of our finances, the failure of relationships, God feeling alone and stuck 
without a way forward, that God, these are the only the experiences of this moment. There is eternity ahead in which every wrong will be righted, every pain will be made right, that nothing can be lost, but all things will be gained, every tear wiped away, that we will rejoice like this bird freed from the trap, to recognize and to embrace and to worship out of gratitude forever in all of the ways that you have freed us and redeemed us and given us grace. God, I pray that by your spirit, we might live into that truth today that even as we experience these traps, you would give us eyes of faith to see that more lies ahead, that this is not the final conclusion of our life or this world or this moment or their situation, that though we ourselves would give our lives, we only gain them through you, that to die, as Paul would say, is to gain even more of you. So we live by faith, we live by this hope, worship you this morning as this psalm calls us to do, the creator of heaven and earth, and we turn his attention to freeing us from often the traps we put ourselves in to give us grace and mercy undeserved. We worship you for it this morning. It's in your name we pray.